2: Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast.
0: The big question on a lot of people's minds are interest rates because uh, it seemed like inflation was being tamed. We went through a year of interest rate hikes after historically low rates. And the big question is, is should the Bank of Canada leave rates where they they are when they meet next month? It depends who you ask. Some economists, like the chief economist at Scotiabank, says we no longer can wait for more inflation and the rate should rise by another quarter percent. But BMO's chief money person says the outlook hasn't changed and things should stay put. Well, that's a big question. And to help us with that is Simon Harvey, head of FX analysis at Monex. Simon, how are you? Hi, no
2: blast, thank you. How are you?
0: Excellent, excellent. Um, I guess I'll get right to it because I want to talk a little bit about your outlook for, for the economy in Canada, about our currency, mm-hmm. the Canadian dollar. But first of all, do you think there will be an interest rate hike next month when the Bank of Canada meets?
2: Uh, We we think there will be. Um, The only kind of risk that they'll they'll kind of stand pat is the fact that they don't necessarily have all of the communication channels at their disposal at the next meeting. Uh, and with the meeting afterwards, we will have a, a press conference. We'll have fresh economic projections from the bank, and they might opt to wait for for, for that meeting instead. But we think the way inflation has traded or has trended over the past few months, um, especially in nearer term indicators, um, it's, it's a lot more concerning than kind of the, the headline figures suggest. And the Bank of Canada has got the problem that inflation could start to to be a bit more resurgent. and. We heard from them previously that they said getting inflation down from 4 to 4% to targets is going to be quite difficult. And we're seeing that start to materialise, especially as the labour market remains really tight. And the economy actually isn't stagnating, as the Bank of Canada predicted at the beginning of the year. So that's not even doing some of the heavy lifting on inflation battle either. So we think it is a case that they're going to most probably have to do one more interest rate just to feel a bit more comfortable. We just don't know whether it's going to come at the next
0: meeting. And when we hear about inflation and uh, interest rates, they always kind of go lockstep. And people say, "Oh, inflation's going up, so the uh, the the interest rates have to go up to slow it down." But mm-hmm. are is it a lot more nuanced than that? What other factors are there in deciding whether or not to raise interest rates on Canadians?
2: It is more difficult than that because what we have is a historical kind of tightening cycle uh, over the past year or so, and the, the kind of cumulative effects of all of those interest rate hikes are still playing out in the economy. So if you take interest rates too high, then you really start getting into this territory where the effects on the housing market, for example, are nonlinear. Uh, and by that, I mean that every extra interest rate hike has the, the possibility of causing widespread financial distress. Um, and actually tipping the economy into recession. And so there are risks to just taking uh, interest rates up to match inflation. Uh, And we're seeing that across the border with the US as well, where there's a lot of emphasis now on trying to model what the previous decisions are, having to to basically assess uh, in real time, whether we've seen the full effects or whether they're still yet to come through and pass through into the economy. What I would say of Canada is that you have had that kind of period of reflection and that period of pause. And since we've had that, the economy has consistently outpaced what the Bank of Canada's expectations were. Um and, and that's of risk from from our perspective is the reason why they should mostly do that, just that extra interest rate hike. Because what they don't want is for inflation to kind of tick back up again at a time when, you know, the labour market's still producing pretty high wage growth. Uh, there are two that the economy is still ticking over with a, with a decent pace of growth because if all of a sudden you have that uptick in inflation at that time, there is the risk that all of a sudden that becomes self-fulfilling and we have more momentum in the, in the kind of increase in prices again. So we think from purely a psychological basis we'd be inclined to do that hike um, especially with interest rates where they are. I don't think we're at that kind of region where the housing market has stabilised recently where that would necessarily Economy, um, So I think that's kind of, it's a very fine line for them to walk, but I think that's where they're kind of leaning towards.
0: Yeah. And what about job numbers? Let's talk about job numbers because uh, they're really strong right now. It's sort of historically low unemployment in Canada, right?
2: Yeah. And we're seeing everywhere. It's in Europe, it's in the US. But the labor market is just really turning and by that, I mean, we're not necessarily seeing kind of businesses really cut back on the amount of workers. There's a bit of labor hoarding going on still, especially within kind of service sector uh, jobs and, and kind of discretionary spending jobs, because these employers got so burnt over over the kind of COVID reopening that they just couldn't add staff quick enough that they're really hesitant to start letting staff go. So even though we are seeing some headlines creep in that you know big tech companies and some other kind of uh, household names of workers, we're not necessarily seeing it in the job numbers as a whole. Now they are starting to soften somewhat in kind of the distribution of where the jobs are being added and the impact that's going to have on the, on the wage numbers. But bear in mind you've kind of hit near the, the top or at the top of the, of the Bank of Canada's hiking cycle. You would have expected that the unemployment rate would have kind of bottomed out at this point and the businesses aren't still showing intent to, to, to hire. Right. So let's
0: let's talk a little bit about how uh, uh interest rates are affecting uh the price of real estate because it seemed like real estate really kind of uh I wouldn't say it bottomed out but it definitely slowed down and then all of a sudden Uh, People seem to get used to interest rates and real estate prices started to get hot again at the beginning of the year. And uh, Toronto, Montreal, uh, Vancouver, uh, interest rates or uh, uh, real estate prices have really risen again. And it seems like the interest rates have no
2: bearing on that. I think they do to some some degree, we have seen, you know, because of the the extensiveness of the, of the hiking cycle, the, the housing market did moderate quite substantially uh, over the past year. But as you say, we are getting that to that point now where mortgage rates have stabilised, um, and and the housing market is showing signs of strength again. I think in Canada, there's a long-lasting structural uh, imbalance there in terms of you know the need for houses and the actual level of supply. But that's always going to provide a floor. Um, underneath the Canadian housing market, uh, apart from if there's kind of an unprecedented event. Um, But what we're also seeing as well is the fact that, you know, the the mortgages that are being taken out, they're actually a lot longer and a lot less kind of uh, sensitive to to interest rate kind of uh, adjustments in in Canada as well. So the, the accountancy behind it all means that the housing market isn't as sensitive as maybe it would have been, which gives the Bank of Canada, Two well, kind of one solution and a problem at the same time, uh, on the one hand, it means that you know they're they're less likely to topple the housing market, which is good in terms of financial stability. but it also means that their monetary policy instruments aka interest rates are having less of an effect on the real economy because housing is where most people's main store of wealth is um and, and it's also you know kind of has such an impact on on consumer behaviours as well. so we do think the, the stabilisation in housing and the fact that it's starting to reaccelerate accelerate um, over, over recent months, again, kind of compounds that need to say, look, even if there is more kind of impact to come through down, down the pipeline when people remortgage uh, and other factors, we're not necessarily content that we can wait for that without inflation ticking back up again and meaning that we have to take interest rates even higher in the future because we're playing catch-up. And the so, bank has already kind of been burnt by by waiting and sitting on its hands um, right. at the beginning of this hiking cycle, so we don't necessarily think they want to do, want to do that again. So, likely, if it it gets hiked
0: uh, in June, it'll stay. You, you think it'll probably stay put for a while?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we don't think that the Bank of Canada is going to to cut interest rates this year. I think that's pretty much a twenty twenty four story, um, and and that's obviously. In in kind of a a base case scenario. Obviously, if we do see something in the US economy again, kind of a regional banking uh, kind of collapse or uh, something to do with the commercial real estate sector, and that has kind of knock on effects onto the Canadian economy, that's been a different story. Um, But in terms of withstanding any financial instability, we think that the Bank of Canada is really going to have to get inflation just grinding down and see some progress that the labour market is. Recalibrating before we start talking about kind of the path back to three percent.
0: And before I let you go, what 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 do you think is the fate of the Canadian dollar? Do you think it's just going to sort of stay where it is? What what are you projecting for the Canadian dollar?
2: Yeah, it's it's, it's a really difficult kind of climate at the moment. Not not just because of the the kind of the uh, the split. Uh, consensus on what the Bank of Canada does, but also we've got this U.S. debt ceiling problem that's really kind of hanging in the background at the moment. And although we are seeing some commentary from congressional leaders that they're they're making progress and, and they are moving forward and they're pretty content with the idea that the U.S. won't default on its debt, that's really keeping investors quite nervous. And obviously with the Canadian dollar being quite a uh, a risk sensitive currency uh, and obviously sitting over the border from the US. Um, any kind of impact on the US economy from a, a government defaults there will have a spillover effects onto, onto the Canadian economy. So we're seeing at the moment that markets aren't necessarily happy to just add risk um, in terms of their in- investments. And their portfolio allocations, and that's kind of restricting the Canadian dollar somewhat. But we still think that if all of a sudden the tables turn and the Bank of Canada looks like it's actually going to hike uh, interest rates, we think that's going to be supportive of the Canadian dollar, um, even if kind of other factors remain remain as they are.
0: The fires continue in Alberta and B.C. Uh, They've been hoping for rain, especially in B.C. today and tomorrow. Uh, The winds have been a bit more favorable in the past 24 hours in a lot of areas in Alberta crews have been working all weekend to try to save the northwestern town of Fox Creek. Flames are getting really close to that town of about 2,000 people. Over 2,800 firefighters from Canada and the U.S. were battling over 91 active wildfires yesterday. Lots of activities have been cancelled because of smoke in places like Edmonton and Calgary. Uh, And the smoke is brutal, not just in Alberta and parts of B.C. Smoke from Canadian fires is crossing over the U.S. border. It's caused Colorado and Montana to issue air quality alerts and a lot of these cities in the United States the smoke is going to stick around for days and uh, my next guest was among the authors on an international study which found Canadians have the highest relative risk of respiratory mortality resulting from wildfire pollution and uh, he's Eric Levine, a professor in the Interdisciplinary School of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa and Eric Levine is with us Now, hi, Eric. How are you? I'm pretty good. Thank you. Yeah. So um, it's one of those things that uh, we're just getting so used to, especially in B.C. and Alberta. Sometimes you go outside and you can barely notice it. Uh, I think people in Edmonton are noticing it now in Calgary. But um, I mean, let's just talk. What are the, the, the effects of going out in this kind of smoke?
3: Uh, Well, people may uh, feel symptoms like uh, having uh, coughing or uh, nose irritation, Uh, especially those who have chronic conditions like asthma and COPD. uh, Those people might actually have a shortness of breath and people who have cardiac conditions also may have like really had difficulty breathing. So those are the the first symptoms that we might see, but then... uh, uh, it can affect pretty much anyone. So it's not just people who have chronic conditions. It's really, especially the levels of smoke that uh, we're seeing right now, the particles, it's really the, the fine particles that are an issue. So uh, these uh, these can have respiratory effects uh, quite fast.
0: Yeah, so like you say, there's there's sort of the immediate effects. There's older people, people with respiratory ailments and all that stuff. But what about the average person who doesn't have that kind of health concern what's it like breathing in that much smoke and how does that compare to say cigarette smoke
3: it's, it's always difficult to compare with cigarette smoke just because it's not necessarily the same uh, toxic chemicals that we're seeing in the in the two uh, but um, if someone's breathing in um, the the particles in the air right now it's in Edmonton Uh, We're seeing that these uh, particles in the air are about 10, 15 times higher than what we would see normally uh, on a normal uh, day. Um, So it's something that's very bad and uh, people can actually uh, see it right now. It's not just something that we can uh, we cannot see usually the particles in the air because uh, of traffic, because of vehicles. We don't necessarily see those particles, but there are some in the air. Uh, now with the forest fires, it's it's really uh, we're seeing it, and for sure people who are breathing those particles, um, they may may they may have symptoms. So obviously, what I would say is, if people have this and a certain time outside they have to wear a mask like maybe an n95 type of mask especially for outdoor workers for instance
0: right so uh, the mask is is pretty important but it has it can't be just the sort of the regular you know cloth or sort of paper mask it has to be one of those heavy duty masks
3: yeah absolutely yeah the the uh the masks that we've been wearing in the pandemic, like those more aesthetic type of masks, um, they won't necessarily filter in uh, the, the particles, of the really fine particles. So uh, we call them PM 2.5 because they're uh, less than 2.5 microns. And just in comparison, human air is about 50 to 70 uh, microns. So it's, it's quite small. And uh, those N95 masks that are being used in, in medical facilities Uh, They're really the ones that can filter out those uh, particles. So, again, if like someone has to go outside, point A, point B, it might not be a huge issue to not wear a mask. But if you are going to spend uh, a certain time outside as you're working outside or just because you have to do some stuff outside, it might be a very good idea to, to wear a mask.
0: So what are the immediate health concerns? What are some things that you notice right away?
3: Well, the respiratory effects, uh, and we're seeing that uh, in in emergency healthcare services. That's one indicator that usually public health uh, uh, units are are looking into. So we're seeing that more people are having asthma exacerbation. uh, People who uh, have chronic conditions, uh, like having a previous cardiac uh, heart event, Uh, people might have difficulty breathing, uh, and so. It's important for those people, especially people who have asthma, to have those rescue medication close by. If in case you get those shortness of breath type of symptoms, um, to to have them and, and be able to to administer those uh, those medications. But then uh, we are seeing also other effects uh, in terms of concentration. People who are uh, exposed to smoke—that was a study that was done in California recently. Um, people who are exposed to smoke might actually be uh, like the cognitive effect might actually be, uh, be seen. So we're seeing that people might have difficulty concentrating. And, uh, and that's an issue, especially, uh, let's say, in kids, uh, people who are in settings where they're trying to learn something. Um, it's, it's really an issue. So uh, those are the, the immediate effects that we're, we're seeing in terms of the, the studies that have been done uh, so far.
0: Wow. So, so it actually has an effect on our mental health.
3: Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it has an effect on the mental health and uh, we're seeing that uh, that that may increase the number of like admissions in the hospital for for different mental health conditions. And there seems to be an indicator on that. There needs to be more studies to be done, but uh, there seems to be an indicator on that. And perhaps another issue that's also important to raise is among pregnant women, Um, pregnant women are are usually a vulnerable population when we talk about air pollution just because of the the fact that the the fetus might be exposed through the inhalation of air of the mother and um, we are seeing more and more studies showing that babies or fetuses that are exposed during the gestational period might actually be uh, affected in terms of their Uh, immune system development in terms of the respiratory uh, system development and also in terms of the risk of uh, the the women delivering prematurely uh, because the the smoke might actually induce some levels of inflammation. So those are the effects that need to be be, uh, of concern.
0: Wow. I, I want to ask you, uh, we're talking about air quality and what it does to our health. And I want to ask you about people who are living in situations where there's lots of smoke outside. Uh, what do you do? What can you do? And what can't you do?
3: Uh, One thing I would say is um, close the windows, make sure that um, you stay inside uh, as much as possible uh, and as much as boring as it may sound and um, make sure that if you have an air purifier, I don't know if anyone might actually think of buying one ahead of time, but it might be a good idea to, to have one maybe for a future event, but, Having an air purifier might actually help purifying the uh, the air and uh, making sure that it reduces the amount of particles in the air. Uh, if you've got um, some sort of uh, air circulation mode uh, or uh, some sort of uh, like air conditioner that, that can actually be reliable, then you can put it on. And um, yeah, trying to avoid going outside for um, like doing any... Uh, Physical activity that are not necessary. So obviously, if you need to go outside for make going out for a walk with the dog or make it quick, uh, if um, you have to uh, do physical activity outside, might not be a good idea. It might be good to to stay inside. So those are the do's and don'ts I would say um, on an individual uh, level basis. And of course, it, it changes from different areas of where we're located because of the. The different levels of uh, the air quality advisories right now
0: right and and are we seeing some of the the worst air quality uh in in history really for, for prolonged periods of time in places like calgary and edmonton
3: uh well we'd have to check uh, the historical um, um sort of uh surveillance on the, the levels of particles in the air. I'm not sure if it's necessarily the the worst uh, event, but uh, it's certainly in, in some of the highest I've seen in, in uh, several years, uh, uh, what I'm seeing in terms of the, the levels of particles. So I know we have, like Environment Canada uses an index, it's called the Air Quality Index, and usually it's on a level of 1 to 10. And if it's over 10, it's really like a high risk. Right now in Edmonton and Calgary, it's over 10 and several other uh, cities also in Alberta in the same situation. Um, If we look at the absolute number of particles, like in terms of uh, usually it's quantified in micrograms per cubic meter of air. And uh, we're seeing huge amounts of particles in the air. That's why people are seeing that sort of smoggy. Uh, type of uh, look uh, outside and um, the levels I'm seeing are really, really high and certainly uh, among the highest in North America right now. So are these the, the highest we've seen? And not necessarily, but they're certainly uh, of high concern.
0: And it's certainly something we're going to have to get used to. Uh, it seems like with uh, the climate changing, it's getting it seems to be getting hotter. We're, I mean, you can't argue with the fact we're seeing more and more fires every year. Um, how concerned are you about uh, about our health in the future when every summer we have to deal with a, a few weeks of smoky air?
3: Uh, well, and, and one thing we have to say about this, uh, let's say this fire specifically, it's, we can't like establish like there's a causal link with climate change right. uh, in terms of uh, is it absolutely climate change that is causing this fire right now? Not necessarily, but what we know is um, we're seeing an increased frequency of those events in the context of a changing climate. Now, we know that um, working with those who are working in the forestry uh, sciences, uh, they're sort of projecting that those types of events will occur more frequently and will occur earlier in the season and will be more intense, uh, depending on the different sort of uh, pathways that we may end up uh, going through in terms of the the temperature increases. So if we end up uh, having global temperatures that are increasing Drastically over uh, the couple next decades, uh, this will likely impact uh, wildfires. But uh, if we're sort of trying to limit the temperature increase uh, to a certain level, that might actually help out in terms of the uh, reduction or stabilizing the number of forest fires. But one, one other thing is that it, we're not seeing the same patterns necessarily across Canada. We are seeing, of course, BC, Alberta... And some of the prairie provinces that are being affected more and more by those wildfires. But the patterns aren't necessarily the same for Ontario and Quebec, uh, where we're not seeing the same pace of increase uh, in terms of wildfires.
0: Right, and you talked uh, earlier about mental health and how it affects our concentration, and that must all be kind of new in terms of study. What would you like to see in terms of research, and uh, what's going on with with our knowledge of uh, breathing in smoke like this?
3: Uh, Well, I think uh, the long term effects aren't necessarily well known. We are seeing those acute effects. We've discussed uh, the fact that people might see respiratory symptoms in the short term when those levels are increasing outside. So we might see those symptoms occurring within a few hours or a few days after being exposed. Uh, So that's why we need to sort of listen to our body and make sure that we uh, look out for those symptoms. But we don't necessarily understand well the impacts if we're repeatedly being exposed to those Uh, forest fires uh, every year? Uh, Are these affecting our mental health in terms of depression or are these affecting neurological outcomes? Uh, Are these affecting cancer uh, development? So there's a lot of uncertainties uh, and I think it's going to be very important that we, we get those answers just because Population needs to know and we also need to uh, prepare for the future if we anticipate that those uh, wildfires will, will stick around and will increase in frequency.
0: Around 90 light years away from our solar system is an exoplanet covered in volcanoes around the same size as the earth and potentially able to support life and best of all canadian astronomers found it bjorn Benneke is the head of the astronomy division within the department of physics at the university of montreal and his team found it bjorn is here now congratulations bjorn and thanks for being here
4: thank you very much
0: yeah it's very very cool i have lots of questions like uh, what is an exoplanet but my first question is how did your team find it before everybody else
4: yeah that's actually an interesting story so there was initially a much larger planet known around that same star. It was initially uh, discovered by NASA's test mission. Uh, that's a little space telescope that is uh, orbiting around the Earth. And so we were part of the team that discovered this. And at that point, uh, I looked at those data and had the idea that well, these data that we had previously um, available, they were just not sensitive enough to also find small planets around the star. So it was sensitive to find that larger planet, but not small planets. And so then I basically reached out to NASA's uh, Spitzer Space Telescope Department. And I said, here we ha- in Canada, we have this opportunity. If you give us access to this telescope, and we can stare at that star for five days straight, so 120 hours, then we can actually look for Earth-sized planets or smaller planets around, um, around this star. And so they agreed. They gave us access to the telescope. We observed for five days, 120 hours straight. And then my student and I here in uh, Montreal, um, we looked at the data. We went through this. We were quite well prepared for this. And then we saw, of course, the larger planet also in the data. But then we also saw a signal, a very faint signal of a much smaller planet, an Earth-sized planet in the data. And so that was for us super exciting that we saw this. Um, And at the time, we were a bit worried that maybe this is not really a planet. So there was a large effort to confirm the planet. But in the end, we could show that this planet actually exists. And we could start to characterize the
0: planet. Wow, so you, you say it was a signal. So you're, you're not actually seeing an image of the planet, but you're, you're detecting it's there from a signal. What, what does that mean?
4: Yeah, that's correct. So for these small planets, we don't have the tools or the telescopes in place to find an Earth-sized planet like this by directly imaging it. But instead, what we do is um, we observe the star continuously, in this case for five days straight. Um, and what happens is that when the planet goes in front of the star, it blocks out a tiny amount of the light from the star. And so all that we can see is that the star is usually very uniform in its brightness. And then for a couple of hours, it gets fainter because the planet passes in front of the star, casts a shadow. And from our perspective, the star appears a bit darker at, during this time. And so we can measure this diminution in, in, the, in the brightness of the star. And that basically repeats every time the planet comes around. So we see that signal. We know the planet is there. And we can also determine how long it takes to go around. So from that, we even know um, how long the orbital period for the planet is, or how long one year for this planet is. And then we can also infer how hot the planet must be, because we can say how far the planet is from the star.
0: Right. And and really quickly, in a simple, describe how far 86 light years away is.
4: Well, 86 light years is in a kind of glob- in a global universe on uh, the scale of the universe actually relatively close to us. So it's really in some way our neighborhood if you want. Right. But on, a, but on a scale compared to the solar system, let's say the distance to Mars or to Jupiter, it's really, really far away. So 86 light years means that the light needs 86 years to go there. Um, for example, to go to Mars, it's only a few minutes for the light. So you can imagine if we take with our rockets, six months to go to Mars, if we wanted to go to this planet, it would take tens of thousands of years with current technology. Um, But the hope would be, of course, that at some point in the future, we will have much faster rockets and that we could actually go there maybe one day.
0: Wow, that's that's far. And uh, in a minute or less, can you explain what an exoplanet is?
4: Yeah, so generally, an exoplanet is simply a planet in some way. But it's a planet that is not in our solar system, so it doesn't go around the sun, but it goes around another sun or a star. So basically, when you look into the night sky, all of those light dots that you can see there that we, that we call stars, they're actually other suns. And so what we can now do is we can look for planets around those other suns, around those other stars. And, and that's what we have done here. There's a, a faint star in the, in the night sky, and we have found that there are other planets going around that. And then we call this an extra planet because an extra solar planet, um, a planet around another star that is not going around the sun.
0: Elon Musk said that whoever the CEO is of Twitter, they, quote, must like pain a lot. Then he promised he would step down as, as soon as he found a replacement, quote, foolish enough to want the job. Well, he's finally found that person after months and months of people asking him who's going to be the new CEO. It's Linda Yaccarino, a highly regarded advertising executive from NBC Universal. She'll start in 6 weeks, but is she set up to fail? And there's a phrase that's being thrown around. It's called the glass cliff. I was this week old when I learned it, just learned it. The phrase, the glass cliff was actually coined in 2015, a variation of the glass ceiling, which is, of course, the idea that there's this invisible limit on what certain people, especially minorities and women can earn. The idea of a glass cliff was being thrown around a lot this week after Elon Musk Uh, hired yakarino as the new ceo it's the idea that uh, women as well as underrepresented minorities are more likely to be hired for leadership jobs when there's a crisis those are the ones they're offered and it sets them up for failure well twitter certainly seems to be teetering on the brink these days but is she being set up to fail i mean she's a Total professional. She's good at her job. She didn't have to take the job if she didn't want it. But what is the end game for Twitter, especially after Tucker Carlson started claiming he was going to have a show on Twitter? To help us with that is our friend and tech analyst, Carmi Levy. Hi, Carmi. How are you? Great to be here, Marty. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Like, like first of all, your thoughts. I mean, the idea of a glass cliff. I I mean, she doesn't have to take the job if she doesn't want it. But at the same time, I don't know. This seems like a a bit of a suicide mission could be. What do you think?
1: It kind of is. I mean, uh, you know, I think uh, Elon Musk is almost like the Donald Trump of the business world. Anything that he touches these days seems to lose half of its value within months. Certainly, he's got a track record, uh, you know, SpaceX, for example, Tesla, but uh, there's no arguing that Twitter, he seems to be reversing his luck. And uh, so, you know, yeah, like anyone who kind of touches Twitter at this point uh, ends up worse uh, as a result. And he's made it very clear that it's going to be a pretty rough road. It's already been fairly turbulent since he took over late last year. Um, and yeah, I I, I think uh, Miss Yacarino is setting herself up for failure. I think she's she's known as a, a pioneer in digital advertising. She's you know comes from NBC Universal. She you know knows the business. She defined a lot of the best practices uh, that most companies follow today. Uh, but at the same time, this is Elon Musk. He's made it very clear he's not just going to walk away. He's going to continue to run. Uh, you know the the operations and the technology. of The company she'll run the business. So. Is he even going to let her grab the reins or is he going to grab them back when she says or does something he doesn't like? If I were in her, in her shoes, I would have a, a pretty ironclad contract in place because I suspect six months from now, we're going to be looking at the, uh, back at this point, not the best chapter in Twitter's history. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it's always the boss that, that <laughs> makes you live or die when it's, or, or the, oh say the owner of the company. And if it's someone who takes such a hands-on approach that, that smells like trouble. Yeah, very much so.
1: And I think what's different here with Twitter, and we seem to forget that is, you know, companies like NBC Universal publicly traded. So you are accountable not just to a boss, you know, your bosses really are shareholders. And the only thing that really matters is, are you driving the value of the shares up? And if you're not, then that's problematic whereas with Twitter, because Elon Musk paid $44 billion for it, he owns it. He owns the playground. He brought the ball to the schoolyard, and it's up to him to decide what the rules are, and if he doesn't like the way the game is being played, guess what? He can take his ball and go home. He doesn't have to answer to anyone, so if you're Linda Yaccarino now, the only thing that matters is pleasing Elon Musk, which, as we know, kind of hardy, somewhat of a mercurial individual, um, so I, I really don't see uh, a kind of a A path forward for her. I'm kind of looking at her history and trying to align it with how she might succeed at Twitter. And I just don't see it. Elon Musk, uh, in the past, he's put women in power. For example, Gwynne Shotwell, who's the chief operating officer of SpaceX. Musk knows well enough to let her run the show at SpaceX, and he stepped back from it. That's why SpaceX is as successful as it is, because it's insulated from the extremes of Musk's behavior. That's not the case at Twitter. And I fear going forward, he's meddling in Twitter. He doesn't meddle in SpaceX. The space company continues to succeed. Twitter, unfortunately, is going to fail largely because Elon Musk refuses to let go.
0: Right. So, so taking that out of the equation for a while, being kind of optimistic, you've got this woman who's very, very good at her job. What uh, does she have to do to be successful right away?
1: Well, you know, she's known as a digital advertising pioneer. So we know full well that advertisers have left the platform. They were, you know, worried about having their brand associated with extremism, with racism, with misinformation and disinformation and kind of the worst of Elon Musk's character and those he hangs out with in the digital space. And so, you know, toward the end of the year, and of course, as the new year began, most advertisers essentially left the revenues of the company crashed. So her, her real goal is get the advertisers back, convince the established business world that yeah, Twitter is still a viable platform, and if you have advertising dollars to spend and you want to spend at least some of them on on Twitter, it's an interesting change because Elon Musk made it pretty clear, well, if the advertisers are going to leave, then we're just going to make money through subscriptions, which also hasn't worked it very well. So a bit of a 180-degree turn because now advertising is the thing, and if anyone's going to convince the rest of the world that Twitter is still a serious advertising platform, it will be Linda Iacarino. That is the one and only job that she has to do, convince advertisers advertisers to come back. If she succeeds, then she will do well. If she doesn't, and we'll know that in just a few short months, it's kind of game over for her.
0: And, and with her uh, ascension to the job, it's kind of taken away that little checkmark, the little checkmark check controversy, because that was all I was hearing about. But that seems to be in the past now.
1: Yeah, exactly. Because it, it, you know, a year from now, it's not going to matter whether you know, we know what the deal is with Twitter blue or blue verification checkmarks or anything like that, because if the company doesn't make more money than it spends, like it, it would, it'll simply cease to exist. And I think the current trajectory left unchecked. That's where it's headed. So you know, you know, Elon Musk should count as lucky stars. He's essentially used the uh, the uh, ascension of a new CEO as the way of kind of. Sweeping aside all the other controversies that have dogged him for the last number of months, it sort of clears the decks a little bit. And now it's her story to tell. Hopefully he knows enough to kind of step back and let her do her thing. She's done extraordinarily well in the past when she's been given the room to maneuver. If Elon Musk is wise, he'll do the same thing here as he's done at his other companies. Again, time will tell because with Twitter, he doesn't seem to sh- to, sh- to show much sort of, you know, sort of tendency to behave in that way. I'm hoping he's learning his lesson.
0: I guess one of her first jobs will be to decide what to do with Tucker Carlson, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, he's made it clear that his first post-Fox uh, Adventure is going to be t- basically taking the same show he did uh, on that network and replicating it on, on the Twitter platform. Of course, Twitter hasn't said anything about whether they welcome him, whether they'll allow him, whether they'll restrict him or ban him. No one really knows. Uh, you know, but what I find interesting here is, I mean, there, you know, there are those who support the move say, well, Twitter's got to do something to remain relevant. And, you know, having someone like Tucker Carlson certainly creates the kind of, you know, attention seeking spectacle that will, you know, garner everyone's engagement. But the interesting thing is at Fox. He had the ratings. He didn't have the advertisers. Advertisers fled his show in droves because nobody wanted to be associated with misinformation, disinformation, and rampant misogyny. He's a toxic brand. And so, you know, you will you know, she, Linda Yaccarino, she may find herself making a deal with the devil if she decides that Tucker Carlson can bring his traveling circus road show to Twitter. Um, it, you know, because essentially, yeah, she'll get a lot of attention. Yes, there will be a lot of engagement around the show but advertisers will continue to stay away because that toxicity uh, runs against brand development for most organizations. Nobody wants to touch that with a 10-foot pole. So it'll be an interesting sort of, and it'll also be an, it'll be an interesting kind of moment uh, you know, where she essentially has to convince Elon Musk one way or the other. Will he agree? Will he not? Will he allow her the room to make the call? That's the first and probably most significant decision she has to make. And that will kind of show us exactly where the Yakarino musk uh, relationship is going to go. Uh, and if she doesn't get her way, I expect her tenure at this company is going to be pretty short. Right. So what do you think is the relationship? This is what I don't
0: understand between if, if this Tucker Carlson Twitter thing happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, if he put if he put a, a show on YouTube, it would just be on YouTube. But if he puts the show on Twitter, it's it's almost like it's. It's the whole network. It's sort of he is now the face of Twitter. Will will it just be him doing a show, putting it up on Twitter and them allowing it? Or will this be kind of a Twitter endorsed program?
1: if Twitter is going to return to any sort of relevance, because it re- there really has been erosion in recent months and I think a lot of people are, maybe they're not quitting the platform, but they are certainly engaging with it less because the level of noise, the level of chaos uh, certainly has been rising in recent months as Musk has skittered from one ridiculous decision to another. Um, I think Linda Yaccarino will have a decision to make. Either she pitches her wagon to, you know, marquee players like Tucker Carlson, in which case I think the chaos and noise will only continue and Twitter's trajectory will be downward or she figures out how to create a product an ecosystem that brings the revenue back, that brings advertisers back, that convinces them this is a place where they should be spending their money, where they want to have their message appearing alongside user-generated content. Right now, that's not the case. Um, and unfortunately for Twitter, time is running out. At some point, Elon Musk's wallet is going to bottom out. He's not going to be able to finance the future of this company for too much longer. She's got to figure out how to regenerate advertising revenue, and it is not by having Tucker Carlson as your singular marquee performer, you've got to bring more moderate voices in, and then you've got to convince the revenue generators to come back as well. That is the only way. And again, if that doesn't work, clock is already ticking pretty loudly. And do you
0: think this could be a really good opportunity for Elon Musk to kind of step away from this? Because it seemed like the more in control he was, the more that he was the spokesperson for Twitter, the worse things got. And this might be a good opportunity for him to give it to somebody else and maybe even change the whole face of Twitter.
1: If he were being mature about it, that's exactly how it would play out. I would like to think that Elon Musk is uh, emotionally intelligent enough to recognize that the more he micromanages, the worse it is for Twitter's business. Um, and I'd like to think that he will—he'll look at his history with Tesla and with SpaceX, which, with SpaceX, which would also, of course, both had uh, moments where his micromanagement caused both of those companies harm. And then he learned to trust the adults in the room and hand the reins over to them. So I'm hoping he looks to his previous business examples where where the business succeeded despite him, um, and he applies the same kind of logic to Twitter. The problem with Twitter is, is that Musk sees it kind of as his own playground and it really has become personal to him. I worry that he isn't even remotely close to that point where he can make that adult mature decision. Uh, and if he doesn't, then, you know, basically the, the potential for a Twitter turnaround, uh, it goes from nil to none. Uh, and again, you know, we'll know that pretty soon as well, because it'll only take a few weeks of Linda Akerino in her new role for us to be able to see if Elon Musk is going to either micromanage her or give her the space. If he gives her the space, company has a shot. If he doesn't, uh, we're going to be talking about a very different future for this company.
0: Yeah, and I guess the one thing about Twitter, though, is it it in some ways it's kind of untouchable because mm-hmm. I remember when Truth Social came out. There would, you know, there was some thought that, oh, maybe this will become the new Twitter. And now there's another one that I keep seeing and I've forgotten the name. I assume it sort of feels like it's coming from the left a little bit. And all these new sort of uh, chat sites, just like Twitter are trying, but it's kind of like in the old days of Johnny Carson, they would try these talk shows, but they just never worked.
1: yeah these supposed twitter killers like mastodon post Hive, they all kind of flourished a little bit late last year as Elon Musk first took over lots of downloads lots of people registered for for the the service and then they you know basically died off because they they got to the service they loaded up the app it looked a lot like twitter but they realized none of their friends were there there was no network um, it was just basically the digital equivalent of tumbleweed now the the, the one, i believe the one you're referring to is called blue sky it's actually created by jack Dorsey, who was the co-founder of twitter. Twitter, um, and he, you know, he's creating it as what's called a decentralized or more open source approach to social media, um, and that's been getting a lot of play. It's still in beta now, but millions of people have signed up to be on the waiting list. And if anything is going to kind of take over where Twitter leaves off, it's probably going to be Blue Sky because it re- represents a lot of what Twitter used to be before Musk came along. Before the, you know, the trend line started heading into the negative. So it'll be interesting to see if Blue Sky can pull that off. But you're absolutely right. Right now, 300 million people are still signed up to and using Twitter on a regular basis. No one else can say that. And there's a lot of power in that network effect. Even with all the chaos, people are still hesitant to move across the street if they don't think everyone else is going to be coming with them.
0: And you are so up on this world. What is the state of social media? It seems like, uh, Facebook is, uh, you know, it seems like, uh, you know, grandparents are using Facebook. I, all the young people I know, they're barely on it. Uh, what's, what's the state of social media right now? What's, what, what can we look forward to?
1: Uh, We're definitely at a point where social media is kind of entering its middle age. I'd like to think that we're on the verge of what I call the post-social era that's been around for about 20 or so years. And I think we're finally starting to realize it's really not the greatest thing that we thought it was. And I think we're all starting to look for something else. So definitely, uh, Facebook is, is certainly aging out. Kids aren't hanging out there anymore. They're on TikTok. Uh, they're they're on, uh, on, on, on kind of other platforms as well. TikTok is really the main one. That sort of picked up most of the momentum. Um, and I think we're starting to realize we're putting a lot of time and energy into social media and the return is just not worth it for us. Uh, and I think ultimately that's, that, that's a good thing. I think we have to start really questioning whether we're getting the benefits from this. And truth of the matter is between, you know, impact on our mental health and impact on our time and impact on a whole lot of other things, uh, social media isn't quite as social as we thought it was. And we're starting to really you know, look critically at our investments in it. And that's a good thing. We need to do that. I think everything runs its course. And I think social media is starting to run out of steam. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend.